Well, good evening, everybody. Good to see you all here. Um, all right, let me, uh, let me go ahead and open us. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this evening, for the time that we can gather together in the middle of our week to, uh, to encourage each other and to study uh, this book we've been working through Lewis' uh, Screw Tape Letters. We ask that you would bless our study this evening, that your spirit would be with us, that this study would be profitable for our souls as we uh, consider these matters that Lewis writes about. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. All right, as we uh, Again, this evening, we're going to be looking at letters 25 and 26. Uh, in letter 25, uh, Screwtape is writing about that, uh, that topic of the whore of the same old thing. Uh, the idea of this, um, uh, this idea of uh, constant progress, constant change, constant uh, needing or wanting new and uh, different experiences. A very uh, fascinating chapter and uh, something very useful is a big problem in our days today. And then letter 26, we'll get into the topic of uh, this distinction between unselfishness and love. Uh, as he's uh, looking at the patient's uh, love life, as he's now in a relationship, and uh, I'll start to talk about sowing seeds of things that can then pop up uh, later on. So we begin in letter uh, 25. Uh, Screwtape begins, he's writing about, and we've got this patient, and uh, previously, uh, Screwtape has complained about the fact that this guy now has a bunch of Christian friends. Uh, and that these are exactly the sort of friends that he does not want this person to have. And he continues to complain about that. You know, he's, uh, he talks about them that uh, these friends are merely Christian. That yes, they've got their individual interests, but there's this bond and just a, a mere Christianity that unites them together. Uh, this is a, uh, obviously, Lewis later writes a book called Mere Christianity, and it's talking about this idea of um, a Christianity that's uh, the unity that you have in Christianity in those four beliefs of we believe about God, salvation, Christ, things like that. The Scripture doesn't want us to have that kind of unity. He wants us to constantly be adding other things onto our Christianity. And that way, um, to try to divide us all more. As Christians, we can come from different backgrounds, we can be different kinds of people, and yet have this incredible bond and unity because of Jesus Christ. That's the idea of what Lewis is getting at with this, uh, this phrase of mere Christianity. But uh, Scripture has talked about this multiple times. Actually, I forgot to move the mic over. Screwtape has talked about this multiple times of this desire to change. Um, um, of adding on to uh, Christianity and to cause division and things like that. Uh, so this particular letter, in letter 25, what he's, uh, he's doing is he wants, uh, he's, he's using this idea of Christianity and something else. And here he's adding on something particular, and this is uh, the idea of fashion. Uh, if they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. And so what he's writing about is this idea of uh, influencing Christians to be concerned about change, and particularly the change that's happening today. Give it a, you know, give it a, a, a theme or a flavor of Christianity, but that's not really the focus. The focus is on 
Um, these other things, the what's uh, the fashions, the fads, whatever's uh, you know um, in vogue in the current time, and the the emotion that you're trying to uh, instill in people is this uh, this phrase he uses: the horror of the same old thing. It's the idea of, uh, or another phrase he talks about is stagnation of just just being dissatisfied with things in life. And he talks about uh, Rutape talks about this. Uh, this horror of the same old thing is something that they use to do all kinds of things. It creates heresies because people are dissatisfied with just the uh, simple Christianity. It uh, produces uh, folly and counsel because people will give bad advice because of this influence. It will lead to infidelity in marriage. Uh, it will lead to uh, bad friendships and all kinds of different things. So Screwtape goes on to, to talk about, you know, what is it that uh, God has established for human beings in this regard. Uh, so Lewis here is uh, dealing with some of the ideas of you have change and permanency. God has given us change. You know, we're creatures that experience time. We experience time in sequence. Um, but then he's also given us um, constancy, a, a permanency that kind of balances that out. And those are both good things. And so you can... Uh, uh, and the unity of those things, the, the balance between them is uh, this language of rhythm, kind of a, a rhythm of life. And so some examples that Lewis gives, among some others, you've got the idea of like the seasons. Uh, as you experience a year, like, unless you live in Florida, you know, uh, you've got seasons, the weather changes. Um, you know, in the north, they've actually got four of these. You know, you've got, uh, you know, the spring, new life that comes, you've got the the warm summer, then you've got the fall where the, the winds come, the leaves change colors, they fall off, then you've got winter and snow, and, and then you repeat that cycle. And so you have there both the change of spring, summer, fall, winter, but then you also have the constancy that it's a rhythm that happens every year. Those things, spring will be followed by summer, and summer will be followed by fall, and fall will be followed by winter, and you begin the pattern again. Uh, Lewis uses the examples of like, you know, the, the church calendar of fasts and feasts and things like that. Um, as Presbyterians, we'd probably think of it more as just the rhythm of the week. You've got six days of labor, and then you've got the, the seventh day, the Sabbath, which is a something different. It's a change, but then you've got that rhythm again. There's this, this ebb and flow. You've got this just in, in normal life. We begin as children. We grow up into maturity as adults. We become uh, older and retire and things like that. And, uh, but then you have a new generation that rises up and that, that pattern begins. And so there's all this, this change and still a constancy that happens. In fact, we could probably even talk about it in things like marriage. Marriage has a, a permanency to it. You know, you vowed together to be married until death do us part. And yet the relationship grows and matures and, uh, you're going to relate differently after you've been married for 40 or 50 years than when you were married for five years. You know, my grandparents were married for, uh, I think it was about 76 years when uh, my grandfather passed away. I mean, that's, that's a little unusual. But guess what? There's a lot that changes in seven decades of time. Uh, but, they were, uh, but there was still a, a constancy, a, a, a permanence there. And so this is how God has created us, and those are, are good things, to enjoy that, that rhythm of life. Uh, there's even a, a, a natural pleasantness, uh, use, uh, Lewis uses that language, a natural pleasantness to that change and, 
and permanence, that, that rhythm working together. But one of the things that Satan tries to do, and Screwtape talks about this, is he tries to twit, twist this and to turn it into something different. And uh, in particular, he focuses on this idea of they take that natural pleasantness of change, which is a good thing. God has established rhythm and change and patterns and things like that. But then you twist it into a demand of absolute novelty. You turn it into this demand of always wanting something new, never being satisfied with the rhythm, never being satisfied with the constancy and permanency of things. You're just always chasing after something different. Um, this, it's a demand for an infinite or unrhythmical change in life, which is not good or healthy. But if you look at our, our culture, this is really what we live in. I mean, think about just how fast-paced our culture it is and how it is that everyone lives their lives. There's a lot of chasing after stuff and a lot of dissatisfaction in stuff, and that's because there's this constant demand for novelty. Well, why is it that it's a bad thing? Uh, Screwtape talks about, you know, in their eyes, some of the benefits of this. Um, part of it is because it diminishes pleasure while increasing desire, you know, the, the law of diminishing returns. As people are constantly chasing something new, they're constantly becoming less and less satisfied because none of those things actually give them pleasure anymore. They're just becoming unmoored and just, you know, uh, you, know that, you have that, uh, uh, that picture in the scripture of you know, a, a, sea, a ship cast off on the sea without an anchor and it's just being tossed to and fro all over the place. Well, that's how people live their lives. And so it ends up resulting in less pleasure for them while their their desire is increasing. They're they're craving it more and more. In addition, uh, to pursue constant novelty often uh, requires money. Uh, You see it often that it's uh, people who are rich or at least pretend to be rich uh, who are the ones who are often able to chase these kinds of things. And so they, uh, this re- results into falling into other kinds of sins, of greed and unhappiness and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, and this often then leads into even more uh, bad pleasures that aren't good. Uh, and then uh, one of the last things uh, Screwtape talks about, that this desire for novelty, what it ends up doing is it produces fashions, or vogues is a, another phrase that he uses. And this is the idea that there, there comes these shifts in this culture and society of, of what it is they're pursuing or what is it that they see is uh, the things that they see are good or the things that they see as, as not being good. So then he turns his attention to, to talk about this a little bit and that this, uh, this idea of fashions is really just a, uh, it serves as a distraction. Uh, again, remember, there's all, all this imagery that Screwtape's using of you want to cause confusion. You want people's brains to be befuddled. You want to keep them away from the important things. And so a lot, of these, uh, a lot of these topics come back to just trying to confuse people. And so you use this, uh, this fear of just the same old thing. You turn it into this craving for novelty and new stuff, and it results in fashions in society. And these fashions then confuse people about what the real issues are. So, for example... He talks about, uh, you know, we direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is least in danger and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that vice, which we are trying to make endemic. What does this mean? Well, it, it means that in, uh, in society and, in, in, you know, in the current generation, those things that people get upset about, 
those really aren't the big problems. It's not something that's actually uh, the, the major issue for that generation. But if you can keep people focused on that stuff, that's the stuff they get really upset about. They're completely blind to the actual real vices that may be prepared to destroy them. And in turn, you also get them to, uh, you know, they'll give their approval to things. And you get them to give the, their approval to things that are the closest to the vices that you're trying to make acceptable. And so there, it's about this confusion. Get them to think positively about things that are actually end up going to destroy them in the end. So if we look at our society, there are all kinds of things that uh, when we think about our culture, especially like, you know, the younger generations or the things that they approve of or disapprove of, they're really not the big issues in our culture. I mean, you can just, uh, an example of tolerance. Is our society an intolerant society? And yet that is the, the virtue that is extolled by everybody. And what is it that's, that's now turning into? It turns into an acceptance of everything, even some of the worst perversions of wickedness that exist. So you have this confusion that's happening, this, this, um, this idea of tolerance, and if you want to take it in, its, uh, in, a, in a more charitable form of, of loving your neighbor and being kind to people who are different than you, there's nothing wrong with that. Those are good biblical things. But then you start to twist that into an actual vice, this issue of anything goes, and there's no moral boundaries. That's what's happening. That's, this is, that is what Lewis is talking about here. And then think about, you know, the things that, what is it that people uh, get upset about? It's often the things that really aren't problems in our culture. They get uh, completely worked up over other stuff that aren't the main issues, and then you ignore the actual big problems that are happening. And so that's what's, what's going on here. Lewis is you know, tracing out this movement of the, the constant desire for novelty of new things, how this then results in these fashions and the, the impact that fashions have on society. Towards the end of the letter, he starts to talk about, uh, again, part of the, the use of this is how it uh, affects people's thinking. He talks about how God, uh, God wants us to think about actions in a particular way, such as, you know, is this right? Is this prudent or wise? Is it actually possible? And things like that. But through this constant uh, desire of novelty or fashion and change, the questions that people ask when they're evaluating things are different. They're not thinking about right and wrong. They're not thinking about wise or foolish. They're not thinking about possible or impossible. They're thinking about, is it in accordance with the general movement of our time? Is it progressive or reactionary? Is this the way that history is going? The reality is you can't answer those questions. Surte brings that out. You can't answer those questions because you don't know the future. You don't know where history is going in the end. You know, this idea of being on the, the right side of history or something like that. But the other questions about right and wrong and wise and unwise, those are actually really important questions. What happens in the end? We neglect the relevant questions, and people, they don't want to be thought of as being backwards. They don't want to be thought of being old-fashioned or anything like that. They want to be modern people, progressive people, up with the times. And they end up falling into these kinds of traps. In the last section, Screwtape talks about, you know, people used to recognize that some changes were for the better, 
Some changes were for the worse, and others were, or, you know, some are indifferent. He talks about how we've lar they've largely been able to remove that knowledge. People don't understand that anymore. But you've got this idea of this constant moving forward and progress. They've switched out the adjective unchanged for a charged, uh, an emotionally charged word, the adjective of stagnant. You're not changing, you're becoming stagnant in the end. And that's a and that's a big problem. Now, Lewis doesn't really delve into this, but this is a this is something that's really important for the church today, uh, and especially you know the last you know 60, 70 years in American evangelicalism. There's been a lot of movements to try to make Christianity uh, agreeable or acceptable to our culture, doing the exact things that Lewis is talking about. Now, he's talking more broadly speaking, but we know. I mean, this is everywhere in the church today. I mean, that was the whole seeker-sensitive movement of trying to make people feel more comfortable in church. And even today, it's now affecting things as the, the church uh, or different churches um, end up compromising on social issues. It's, it ends up, whether they admit it or not, what they're doing is becoming acceptable to the times. And what you end up doing is you're, becoming, you're changing into something new, you're creating something novel, and you end up losing what Christianity is supposed to be in the end. And so uh, there is a, a change in rhythm in Christianity as we grow and mature. Paul talks about you're not supposed to stay as babes drinking milk. You're supposed to grow and to be able to eat meat. But there's also a constancy as well where we don't change on the fundamental doctrines. But we grow up in those doctrines. Uh, Lewis in the in the last battle when he just kind of describes the the afterlife and in heaven and things like that it's this going further up and further in it's not that heaven changes but you're maturing in it and enjoying it more and you know that's really what the Christian life is supposed to be like a growing up and maturing in it and so this idea of this constant desire for novelty all it produces in the end is uh, a lot of destruction in the church because the church is to have a certain constancy and permanence to it. And the church does not change like the times do. It does, it's not supposed to be thrown back and forth by every wind of doctrine, like a ship on the high seas without an anchor. And so a lot of what Lewis is saying here is, is incredibly, uh, incredibly important for the church. Okay. I did a lot of talking there. Are there any questions or comments on letter 25? We've only even gotten through one letter. Any questions or comments? All right, I'll move on to the letter 26, and perhaps we'll have some after we get through letter 26. <clears throat> okay, so letter 26, you're coming back to this idea of the relationship between the patient uh, and his, uh, his girlfriend. And Screw Dave talks about how courtship is a time for sowing seeds that will grow up 10 years later into domestic hatred. Uh, and he's getting at this idea of, you know, there's a certain enchantment that happens. You know, what's the, the Disney phrase? And um, I think it's Bambi, Twitter-pated. You know, there's a, a certain emotional uh, enchantment that, you know, you kind of view that, that time period. And Screwtape talks about, you know, encourage them to think that, you know, they've, they're in this period of love, this emotional uh, excitement. And, uh, you know, think about or let them think that they've solved all the problems. Um, 
They've solved by love problems that they haven't actually faced yet. They've only just postponed them or pushed them off. Um, but they think they have. You know, this is the idea of, you know, the, the young couple that's dating. They're like, oh, yeah, we never fight. We never have any disagreement. You know, all that stuff. And, you know, they get married and live together for a couple of years. And it's like, oh, wait, what happened? Now we're fighting all the time. Well, the reality is you're enchanted. You aren't actually dealing with any of the problems. You're just pushing them off and the problems are still there. They're just uh, taking a little while to show up. So then Screwtape uh, starts to talk about this idea of unselfishness versus charity. And, uh, and part of this, Lewis and other places, talks about um, how unselfishness has kind of been elevated to be one of like the main virtues. That's like one of the main characteristics of what people seek to be is unselfish. Now, to be unselfish is an important thing, but uh, Lewis is picking up that there's kind of been a, a, a switch that's happened. Because historically, if you were to ask people what's the most important thing for a Christian to be, they would say charitable or loving not unselfish. Those, those two things go together, but there's actually something bigger going on with the idea of charity or love uh, than with unselfishness. And, and he talks about there seems to be uh, this something to screw tape's advantage uh, to make this change. Um, one of the things that screw tape talks about is that there's a, a natural difference between how men and women uh, think of that term unselfish. So he gives the example of uh, a woman thinks of unselfishness as, you know, taking trouble for others, of um, doing things for others uh, on others' behalf, even if it's inconvenient for you, while a man might think of it as not giving trouble to others and kind of just staying out of the way. And uh, he then goes on to say that um, each sex, men and women, then without any obvious unreason, can and do regard the other as radically selfish. Because they've got these different ideas of what it means to be unselfish in their minds, they then start to look at the other person as being selfish, and that's not really the case at all. You've just got different ideas of how you're supposed to interact with people, and neither of those is inherently bad or wrong if, if done in the right way. So then he goes on to, to talk about um, some more aspects of the, the confusion. And part of it is that because of that enchantment, the, you know, the emotions, the, the love that's in the air uh, for the couple, there's a mutual complacence that happens in which each is really pleased to give in to the wishes of the other. And that is similar to what love is supposed to look like. But giving in to the wishes of the other person isn't always actually loving. And that's part of what uh, the point Lewis is trying to make. So Screwtape says, you must make them establish as a law for their whole married life that degree of mutual self-sacrifice, which is at present sprouting naturally out of the enchantment, but which when the enchantment dies away, they will not have charity enough to enable them to perform. Here's the idea. Get them before they're married to, to, um, to make it a rule, essentially, in how they relate to each other of just constantly self-sacrificing for the other because of the, the emotions. Yes, dear, whatever you want, dear, you know, something like that. Um, but then once you start, you know, you've been married for a little while and the emotions don't last and the emotions start to fall away, they haven't actually built up the true love for each other, the charity for each other, but now they've got this rule that their heart is not really into following because they haven't built up the virtue of love yet. It's all been based off the emotion there. 
And so then now they've got this rule of just having to give in and sacrifice for the other, and it starts to cause problems. So Screwtape provides an explicit answer, uh, an example. Uh, you've got this action that they, they need to discuss and figure out what is it that we're going to do. It's something you have to do together. Um, and so you've got the one person, A, argues in favor of B's side, and then B's like, no, they argue in favor of A's side. And we've probably been in this situation before where, you know, it's not what you want, but you're arguing for what the other person supposedly, supposedly wants. <laughs> he makes the comment, it is often impossible to find out either party's real wishes. And with luck, they end up doing something that neither wants, while each feels a glow of self-righteousness and harbors a secret claim to preferential treatment for the unselfishness shown, and then a secret grudge against the other for the which the ease with which the sacrifice has been accepted. So in the end, sometimes you don't actually know what the other person wants because you never actually honestly talk about it because you're so focused on being unselfish that you're never actually honest. And then neither of you is happy, and you each have this idea that you gave in to the other one, and then you have this idea, well, because you're unselfish, they should treat you nicer. And if they don't, you hold a grudge about it. That's the idea of what's going on here. There's a, uh, there's a couple I know who's uh, been married decades, decades. they um very godly, loving couple. And I remember uh, talking with them about marriage at some point. And uh, one of the things they shared is one of the most important things for us in the development of our marriage was learning how to fight. And the reason was they're, they're just two people by temperament who don't like conflict. And so it was just this constant giving in to the other person. And this is what was happening. They, they weren't actually honestly expressing what their desires were. And they weren't then having an opportunity to actually practice love for each other and determining what is best for both of us together. They were just constantly giving in. And so then you're starting to harbor emotions about it. You're, you're starting to harbor, well, why am I always giving in? Why aren't they you know, respecting the fact of just how kind I'm being to them? And that, that can cause all kinds of uh, grudges and issues in the relationship. And so they had to get, they, they, they realized eventually, okay, we actually have to have conflict. You know, we actually have to be honest about what we want and talk about it and, and deal with that and, and do it in a right way. Because, of, of course, the, the wrong way to do that is then you just becomes a yelling match and, uh, you know, you have the, the hurtful conflict that, that can happen. But you have to do it in love. Unselfishness and love are not quite the, the same thing. That's the, the point that Lewis is, is making here. Um, Screwtape goes on to talk about then. So, well, if you can get this, uh, get this pattern and rule of unselfishness going on, well, what happens when you add in more people, like kids? And those kids grow up, and all of a sudden those kids have desires. He says, well, then you can start to play the game, the, the generous conflict illusion. And... Uh, his example is, you know, one member takes care to make it quite clear, though maybe not in so many words, that he would rather not do this thing, such as, you know, having a, a tea party in the garden. Um, but he's prepared to do so because they're unselfish and they're willing to go along with everyone else. And then everyone else is like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to be selfish. We got to be unselfish now. We're going to not do that action. And then it just goes back and forth. And you know, especially when you add more people, what happens? Well, you all start fighting. 
it's like, why are we fighting about this? But that's part of the, the game that's being played, the, the preying on the emotions where it's not really about love and the best interest of the other people, but uh, this, this, uh, this illusion of unselfishness and uh, trying to be seen as an unselfish person. Uh, he even quotes, uh, or uh, he quotes a sensible human, we don't know exactly who this is, that says, if people knew how much in ill-feeling unselfishness occasions, it would not be so often recommended from the pulpit. It's the idea that there's this distinction between unselfishness and love. And the goal in the end is to learn to be loving towards each other. Now, it looks very similar, considering the other person's interest is more important than your own. But love doesn't, uh, doesn't perform that action as an end in itself. You know, the idea of being unselfish because you're an unselfish person. Love does it because out of the genuine interest for the other person. And so there is no grudge holding in the end when you give in to the other person because of their wants. It's because you actually love them. And you think that this is best for them. And so you're willing to die to yourself to do that for them. You don't hold any... Uh, any grudge or any kind of, well, you need to treat me better because of what I did for you. Um, love works differently in that way. Uh, it, you know, and towards the end, Screwtape talks about that uh, uh, one of the things that will happen, there's going to be some degree of mutual falseness and then some, uh, uh, some surprise that the girl does not always notice just how unselfish he is being. You know, you can start to smuggle that in. Get him to think about, you know, he's just always going to give in to her. He's just going to be unselfish in the relationship. And then he's going to be upset about the fact, well, she doesn't appreciate it. She doesn't appreciate the fact that I do this for her. And then, you know, 10 years later, it results in conflict. But love would act differently. Love is not going to expect the other person to pay them back. It doesn't keep a record in that way. And so that's part of the, the point that Lewis is making here between the idea of uh, unselfishness, and charity or love. All right. That's letters 25 and 26. Are there any questions, comments, observations, anything you all want to talk about from either of these letters? Yeah, Trevor. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Trevor's just bringing out the fact that uh, love has often been or is redefined in our, our culture today. And, and Lewis talks about this at, at different points of how love can be used. Like, because sometimes people will use that phrase and, you know, screw tape will use that when talking about uh, the emotional enchantment in relationship. You know, the, you know, the feeling you get, the butterflies in your stomach when you're around that other person. We call that love. Well, it's connected to love, but that's not all of what love is because we're called to love even when we don't feel like it. And so love is more than just a feeling you get in your, in your stomach. Um, and then you have like what uh, our culture talks about love today. Love in our culture today 
is not about the good of the other person, but it's about allowing another person to be autonomous. Um, Because that really is the God of our culture is every person gets to define themselves and to be themselves and do whatever they want. And so to love them is to allow them to do that. To not love them is to stop them in any way. So that's why love gets thrown out as, you know, uh, to, to restrict abortion is unloving because you're stopping a woman's autonomy over her body. Uh, to oppose uh, transgenderism, to oppose um, the uh, gay marriage, things like that. That is unloving because you're hindering those people from doing or being or whatever they want to do or be. Well, as the Bible defines love, love is seeking the best good for that other person. Uh, It is not loving to allow someone to walk off a cliff. It is not loving to allow someone to uh, do something wicked and evil or harmful. Um, love seeks what is actually their best interest, what is actually good for them. I mean, think about a parent for a child. If we applied our culture standard of love to parenting, then the parent can't ever say no to their child. And what's going to happen? Kids are going to die because they run out on the street and get hit by cars or because they... Uh, They play with knives or stick stuff in electrical sockets or things like that because they don't know what's actually best for them. You have to be able to say no because you love them, because you know what's best for them, and you have to protect them from themselves in a sense. Um, And so it it doesn't work. We have to have that biblical understanding of of love, of seeking the the best good for the the other person. Does that make sense? Um, and our, our culture is completely, completely blinded all this. You, you've got a mix together of just allowing them a person to do whatever they want, plus the emotional, you know, well, if they love each other, shouldn't they let, be allowed to be together? Well, that's, that's not actually what love is, and no, they shouldn't, because it's bad. So, yeah, anything else? Right. You know, so he gave it because he really didn't care. It wasn't that he was being unselfish, he just was indifferent. Yeah, that's a that's a good distinction. You know, the the difference between unselfishness and disinterest or not caring. I mean, <laughs> that's a, per, a, a perennial problem between men and women because women want opinions on things that guys just don't care about. <laughs> That's a hard line to walk sometimes. <laughs> but I think that's where uh, love becomes important. Because, okay, I may not care about having tea in the garden. But I'm going to do it, and I'm going to participate in it. You know, I'm not just going to be passive you know, off in the corner, but I'm going to participate in it. Why? Because I care about your good, which means I'm going to participate with you in what you want and desire here. This is putting the desires of the other person before, your, before yourself. And so, um, you know, the unselfish person is going to do it, not because they care about the other person, but because they want to be seen as unselfish. The disinterested person may do it 
but not be engaged in it because they don't care about it one way or the other. They'd just be as happy inside as they are in the garden with tea. The loving person is going to do it and participate in it because they love and are, are oriented towards the person they're, they're doing the tea party with. Does that make sense, that, that distinction? Um, now, it doesn't mean we're always good at it. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things that we, uh, that we do with our spouses that we should do it in a loving manner. And sometimes we do it because of we're just trying to be unselfish or because we're disinterested and, you know, you're just going through the motions. But uh, it's better than that than just, you know, hurting each other and fighting and, and squelching. So you'll, you'll take the, the lesser you know, or, or the better thing, but that goal in the end is for that love. Um, I mean, and there's, there's difficult things there too. You know, when you have something that's an indifferent matter, such as, well, are we going to, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, So to both be unselfish, they can't even color the people one other So yep. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that, that, that's a good example. You know, uh, the wife wants one color, the husband wants another color. They compromise by being unselfish and saying, we're going to paint a color that no neither of us likes. Um, I mean, that's a compromise, but I don't know if that's necessarily... Yeah, you're, you're both unhappy at that point. So, yeah, Terry. What are the real hard time your definitions Okay. Unselfishness. Let's hear your definition of that because that's coming across sounding as though it's bad. And yet, obviously, selfishness is a sin. And we have the one another's and the call right. to one another better than ourselves and so forth. So it's almost like you're putting love and unselfishness as combatants and antagonistic to one another when it seems we need both working together. Culture's idea of love is a selfish love. It's me yes. getting what I want, and yep. it doesn't matter what you want. Yep. And so there's some muddle in my, in my head here about all the terms. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, for Zoom, Terry's asking about you know how are we defining unselfishness and love? Because it, it sounds like we're saying unselfishness and love are uh, opposed to each other. Um, when that's not the case. And that's correct. That's not the case. Um, what Lewis is trying to do here, though, is make a distinction that unselfishness ends up becoming about, um, how's he put this? You see, I, uh, he talks about this in another place. This is an... Um, it's almost like the world is... Yes, and I think he would argue that yeah, I think he would argue the worldly idea of unselfishness has been kind of seeped into Christian thought. Because um, he talks about this in Weight of Glory. He says, if you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would re- reply on selfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied love. Uh, for those on Zoom, something fell somewhere. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, the point, um, so uh, today people would say unselfishness is the highest virtue. Historically, they would have said love. You see what has happened. A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is more than just a philologic, uh, philological importance. 
The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, um, he goes on to talk philosophically that this comes from Kant and uh, the Stoics and other things, and it's not part of the Christian faith. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drinking, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are far too easily pleased. So the idea here is Lewis is looking at the idea of self-denial or unselfishness as kind of taking on, you know, this is the end, that we're just supposed to deny ourselves of things, and, and that's the highest good, as opposed to love having a positive end. It's, it's you're doing it for the sake of something or someone else. As Christians, the highest part of that is we're, we're doing it for Christ. We deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow after Christ, not just for the sake of taking up our crosses, but to pursue Christ in the end. And in our relationships with others, we deny ourselves and act in unselfish manners, not just so that we can say, oh, look how good we are, that we're unselfish, um, or because that's just how we're supposed to be, but we're actually in love denying ourselves for the sake of the other. I think that's what he's he's talking about. Does that make sense? Um, so it's that idea of unselfishness getting turned into an end as opposed to the idea of self-denial being a means to that end of loving something, loving an object. In my mind, you could say you take unselfish love, you have the Father giving the Son. Mm-hmm. Yep. Completely unselfish. Selfish would have been, well, I'd like to help those people, yep. but I, I can't. Yeah. I can't help them. That kind of connotation I get, but I, in the way it's being used there, it almost seems like a negative. It's almost like they're not tied together, and it's giving a connotation that doesn't feel right. So, um, no, I, 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 I would say. When you, when you talk about your example there of unselfish love, the father giving the son, that's how Lewis is talking about charity. When he's using the term unselfishness, he's not using it in the biblical idea of like self-denial or anything like that, or the idea of unselfish love. He's using unselfish in a way that it seems to have kind of taken a life on its own in philosophy uh, and how people think about it in our modern day. And he's opposing that to that Christian idea of charity or an unselfish love, um, where it's being unselfish for the good of the other person, such as the father, because of his love for us, being unselfish and giving the son, and the son being willing to be given and coming and dying for our good. Um, that, that's what Lewis is trying to distinguish. So he, he's not saying that unselfishness is bad. He just doesn't want it divorced from charity. So he's emphasizing the charity thing. He's not saying that unselfishness is a bad, is a bad thing. So it is a little confusing, but it, does that... Yeah, it sounds oppositional. Right, right. Yeah, I think he's arguing about a way that unselfishness is being used as opposed to 
the idea of Christian self-denial and how that connects with love and those two things together. That's, you know, to, to be truly unselfish is to be unselfish in love when you deny yourself for the sake of another. So that's what he's, he's trying to get at. Any other thoughts, questions, observations? All right. Anything on Zoom? Okay. At least not that John can read. <laughs> We've got a fill-in tonight. A fill-in for a fill-in. So. Yeah. Just even among ourselves, sometimes we just get caught up in our own ego. We don't practice true Christ. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah. And when we I mean, people look at First Corinthians thirteen as a very sentimental chapter of the Bible, it gets read at weddings. You read that carefully, and you apply that to your life. People would stop reading that at weddings. <laughs> Because that's calling you to live a way that is radically different than our culture lives. And this may be a good way to think about um, uh, 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 how Lewis is talking about unselfishness. Lewis is talking about unselfishness, a version of unselfishness that is actually selfish. It's uh, people think that giving into other people just for the sake of giving into other people is a good thing because you're not getting your way. And Lewis is saying that's not enough. And it actually, what happens is people hold grudges because why aren't you recognizing of how I'm not getting my way and giving into you? That's actually a selfish action. He doesn't say it all explicitly, but that's what he's saying in the end. Um, that might help Terry answer your question a little bit. That's what Lewis is saying. Just, just giving into someone else is not actually a good the idea of that self-sacrifice and love for the other person where you're, you're giving in, but reality is you're actually sacrificing for their sake. That is true what true love looks like. That is what true unselfishness looks like. That is what true self-denial looks like. It's not just giving in for the sake of giving in. So, um, but yeah, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, the idea of what love should look like and what love should look like in the church. I mean, if we could practice half of that. When Jesus says the world will know you by your fruits, I mean, it would be so evident, and it is so hard to get there. But that, that's, that's what our goal is uh, supposed to be, and that's what Christ did for us. All right, anything else before we close?